Hello, hello. Hey. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am also good. I am actually really excited for this week because I, when I was trying to figure out what true crime I could do without, you know, being too horrific, um, I, I was like, what is the opposite of the Lollary Mansion? And then I realized that true crime doesn't have to be murder. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't. Yeah. And therefore, I am excited for this week. Oh. So, without further ado, let's get right into it. I'm Sonia. I'm Maddie. And welcome to Grimm. Have you ever been to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum? Oh, yes, I have. You know the really famous case of how, like, there was a robbery and a lot of the paintings are missing and that's why they've left, um, they've left these, like, blank frames up? Mm-hmm. I got, like, halfway through the Netflix documentary about it. Yeah. Unfortunately, well, I did not finish. <laughs> perfect, because I'm going to tell you that story today. Well, yeah, perfect. With some of the theories, there were so many, and I had to cut some out and take out some of the detail because I didn't want this podcast to be seven years long. (laughs) Um, Nobody has time for that. (laughs) But um, honestly, I think it's one of the most well-known museums in Boston, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you've lived in Boston for any amount of time, like you have to have gone there Mm -hmm. at least once, you know? To me, it's like the Instagram spot. Like half the people from my school have like pictures of themselves at the yeah, museum like, and like the, the really aesthetic. Yep, the courtyard, the really aesthetic courtyard. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like I don't blame them. It's really pretty. It is really pretty, yeah. Yeah. But um, to give you some context, if you don't live in Boston, um, the museum itself was built with the guidance of Isabella Stewart Gardner, who was an art collector, and it was basically just because she wanted a place for her personal art collection. And if that isn't girl boss, I don't know what is. <laughs> like, I want to be her. Mm. That's so cool. Imagine being rich enough to have your own personal art collection. Yeah, that would be it's pretty nice. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and it was, like, good paintings. It wasn't just, like, you know, like, nobodies on the street. It was, like, she has, like, famous, famous paintings. Like, it cost a fortune, I bet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the museum actually opened to the public in 1903 and she actually continued to expand her collection and she was the one who like arranged it all like it was her setting for the museum and she did that until she died in 1924 and when she died she left the museum with 3.6 million dollars in endowment and she basically wrote in her will like the arrangement of the artwork can't be altered has to stay exactly as I put it and you can't sell any items and you can't bring any items into the collection so the collection has stayed the same since um 1924 Mm. which again like what a move yeah like I want to be her (laughs) um unfortunately though 3.6 million dollars sounds like a lot but it doesn't last a lifetime and Especially if that lifetime is as a museum. Yeah. Um, By the 1980s, the museum was financially in trouble, and the strain kind of left it in kind of a poor condition. Um, They didn't have, like, a climate control system. Mm -hmm. They didn't have an insurance policy. They didn't have, like, basic building maintenance. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about artwork, as I have learned from... The seasons and seasons of white collar that I have watched and rewatched. <laughs> you really need to keep artwork in climate controlled conditions or it will start to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1982, the FBI uncovered a plot by a group of Boston criminals that, to rob the museum and kind of told the museum that, like, listen, your security system is subpar. And you can be robbed really easily. 
So the museum decided to shift some of their funds around and invest in better security, which was a good play. Um, they ended up getting 60 infrared motion detectors. They got a closed circuit television system with four cameras placed around the perimeter of the building. And they hired more security guards, which are positive steps, I think. Yeah, I mean, they didn't work, but... (laughs) Well, I mean, they tried. They tried their hardest. Um, What they didn't end up doing was putting cameras inside the museum because the board of trustees thought that installing that equipment in a historical building like the museum would be just too expensive. So they didn't put cameras inside. And that was their first mistake, I think. Mm. So... Even though they invested money in security upgrades, they what, the one thing that they didn't do was get more points of contact to call the police. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only way that you could call the police from inside the museum, like besides from a personal cell phone, would be to go into the security desk and press a button. Like that was the only button in the security desk. And other museums at the time had this like fail-safe system and the night watchman needed to make hourly phone calls to the police to be like, we're all good. Um, they didn't have that for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so they only had one button and they didn't have this hourly phone call system. Which again, I think that was their second mistake. Yeah. Um, in 1988, the museum had an independent security consultant review the security systems And they basically said that, like, yes, the museum is on par with other museums, but there are a ton of things that they could do to improve the system. Um, And the security director at the MFA, the Museum of Fine Arts, also suggested a bunch of security upgrades. And I feel like if the security director at the MFA suggests some upgrades, she makes some upgrades. Mm. But unfortunately, there was the financial strain on the museum, and Isabella Stewart Gardner's will said that she didn't want anything to change. And so the Board of Trustees still didn't approve any security enhancements. And on top of that, the board denied a request from the security director for higher guard salaries to attract more qualified applicants. Um, the current guards that they had were played just slightly above minimum wage. Um, so obviously, like, you're not going to get the highest caliber security guards to work that yeah um and like i think it was like basically like an open secret among the security guards like all of them that like hey like the isabella stewart gardner museum has a ton of security flaws mm-hmm. and those flaws really came to light on march 18th 1990 when the isabella stewart gardner museum was robbed So the thieves were actually witnessed around 12.30 in the morning by a bunch of St. Patrick's Day, like, party-goers who were leaving this party that was near the museum. Um, And they basically said that they saw two men disguised as police officers parked in a hatchback on Palace Road, which was just about 100 feet from the entrance. So they thought that they were policemen, and they didn't question it. Which, you know what? Fair enough. Like, I don't really blame them. If I saw yeah. some police hanging out by a museum, I'd be like, you do you. Yeah. So. Um, the museum guards on duty that night were 23-year-old Rick Abath and 25-year-old Randy Hested. I think I'm saying those names wrong. <laughs> um, I'm very bad at names. <laughs> Especially surnames. I feel like Rick and Randy are, like, fine. But... <laughs> Anyway, um, Abath was a regular night watchman, but um, Randy Hestan was, it was like his first time on the night shift. Um, so honestly, I think the thieves got really lucky. Like, they got a newbie. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, or they, they knew. Or they yeah. knew. Or <laughs> they were just privy to the secret information. Mm-hmm. You never know. Yeah. Um, In terms of the night shift itself, the security policy stated that one guard had to patrol the galleries with a flashlight and a walkie-talkie, and the other guard had to stay at a security desk. So that's the protocol that they were following. 
and Abath was on patrol first. Um, during his patrol, there were fire alarms that he heard in a different room. So he basically went to go check out the fire alarms, but he couldn't see any fire or smoke, which he was like, okay, interesting. Like, maybe something is wrong. Maybe something is, like, wrong with the... Um, system or something so he ended up going back to the security room and he saw the fire alarm control panel indicated that there was smoke in multiple rooms so he was like well I was in those rooms I didn't see any smoke and he assumed it was some sort of malfunction and just ended up shutting the panel down and that's when he went back on patrol but before he completed his rounds He made a quick stop at the side entrance of the museum to briefly open the side door and shut it again. And he didn't tell anyone what he was doing or why. Um, He completed his rounds at 1 a.m. and then returned to the security desk, at which point he stayed at the security desk and the other security guard started his rounds. Um... About 20 minutes later, at 1.20 a.m., the thieves drove up to the side entrance, parked, and walked up to the side door, and they rang the buzzer, and that kind of went through the intercom, and Abath, like, um, answered the buzzer, and they explained that they were police that were investigating a disturbance and needed to be buzzed in. Now, I don't know why he didn't question that because the only way to like like if the fire alarms went off I don't know why the police wouldn't have gotten there sooner Mm -hmm. you know um maybe it was because it was like people were celebrating St. Patrick's Day or something like that but either way he could see them on the CCTV um and he said that the people who were outside looked like they were wearing police uniforms And honestly, even when people, like, ask to see people's badges, you know, like, they always tell you, like, to make sure that people have their real badges. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would know what to look for. Yeah. I feel like you get some pretty realistic fakes. Yeah. Um, so, like, I, I don't think that what he did was wrong. Like, if I saw people who looked like they were police... Yeah. I feel like I'd be like, fair enough. Like, there was a fire alarm that went off. Like, you can come on in. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that he wasn't aware of any disturbance. But again, it was like the St. Patrick's Day. It was the fire alarms. Like, there were a bunch of things that it could be. So he let the men in at 1.24 in the morning. Um, they were let into this locked foyer that separated the side door from the museum. And they ended up approaching him at his desk and asked if anyone else was in the museum. Um, he radioed Hestand, who returned to the security desk, because, like, if you're on rounds, another person on, round, on like, guard with you was like, hey, the police are here. I would also come to the desk. So mm-hmm. I don't really blame him. Um, but at this point, he said that he noticed that the mustache on the taller man appeared fake. <laughs> <laughs> but the other one told him that he looked familiar and that they probably have a warrant for his arrest so he had to come out from behind the desk to provide identification um, so he did he complied and they um, got him to step away from the desk and again that's where the only like police panic button was mm-hmm. like behind the security desk and if obviously like you're not behind the security desk you can't call the police yeah um so they basically forced him against the wall spread his legs and handcuffed him and then Hestand walked into the room around this time where the other thief handcuffed him as well um so both of them at this point are handcuffed the thieves basically said hey we're here to rob the museum please don't give us any trouble Um, so they did the whole, like, duct tape around the eyes thing, 
and led the guards into the basement where they handcuffed them to a steam pipe and a workbench. Um, they didn't ask for any directions into the basement, and I don't think the basement of the museum was like a known thing. Mm. Um, so that I think is interesting. Um, the thieves like took the wallets and the cell phones, said that they knew where the guards lived, not to tell the authorities anything, and also that they would get a reward in about a year. Very intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all happened in like 15 minutes. So less than 15 minutes later, like 10 minutes from when they entered, around 1.35 a.m., the thieves left the guards in the basement and they went to go rob the museum. Um, like I said, that they got motion sensors, the infrared motion detectors. So we know kind of what they did, but there were no cameras, which was, again, big mistake. Mm. Um But the first thing that was recorded by these infrared motion detectors was them entering the Dutch room at 1.48 a.m. And we know that they left the basement at 1.35 a.m. So what happened in like 15-ish minutes? Um, 13, I guess, to be exact, after they broke in and handcuffed the guards. I think the theory is that maybe they were waiting to see if, like, the police were alerted and would come. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not really sure what you would do for 13 minutes. I feel like if you're in a high-pressure situation, 13 would feel like a lifetime. Yeah. Like, it would feel like forever. I know that when I'm presenting things and it's, like, a lower high-stakes situation, every second feels like a year. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how they managed to make it 13 minutes. But... Anyway, they basically went to the paintings in the Dutch room, and one of those, you know, like those devices that started, like, start beeping the um, distance sensor mm-hmm. when, like, if someone is too close to a painting, um, that started beeping because obviously you have to get close to a painting to steal it. Um, so they smashed all of those, and they took. The Storm of the Sea of Gailey and A Lady and Gentleman in Black. And these paintings were both in glass frames, so they ended up throwing them on the floor to shatter the flame frames. And then they cut the canvases off using a blade, which feels a little bit wasteful. I'm not going to lie. Whenever Neil has to do that on white collar, it's always a big thing. He's like, <laughs> you don't do that because you got to stretch it again. Yeah, I think that was, like, a big thing in, like, the, um, like, docu-series kind of thing. Because it's, like, if you're stealing a painting, you don't want to damage it. Yeah, it's odd that they did that. Because, like, I feel like it would make it lose value of some kind. Yeah. Like, now you just have, like, the edge of it that's kind of frayed. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I don't know. If you're stealing it, like, maybe it was just, like, a get everything as fast as possible. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. But they took a Rembrandt as well, a self-portrait oil painting. And then I think it ended up being too big, so they like left it leaning against a cabinet. Um, also, I think it was painted on wood, not canvas. So they were like too much of a hassle to like you can't fold that, you know, you can roll up a canvas, but you can't really roll up a piece of wood. Yeah. Um they also took a small like postage stamp almost size self-portrait etching by Rembrandt that was on display um, underneath the larger portrait. And then on the right side of the room, they took landscape with obelisk and the concert. Also, they like took it from their frames. Um, and then from that room, the last thing they took was an ancient Chinese goo, which is like a vessel to drink wine. It kind of looks like a big funnel, mm. um, which I feel like that would be hard to transport, but yeah, they took it, so... Um, at 1.51 a.m., one of the thieves was still in the Dutch room, and the other entered this narrow hallway, which is the short gallery, on the other end of the second floor. And then the other thief, like, joined, basically. I think they split up for a little bit. Hmm. And in that room, they started removing screws for a frame that was displaying a Neapolonic flag. Um, I think they were trying to steal the flag, but, like, it didn't work out because screws are a lot more difficult than tearing canvas Mm. Um, 
Yeah, so they gave up part way, and I think the only thing that they took was this exposed eagle on top of the flagpole. Um, and then they took five Degas sketches, sketches from the room. And then they also took another work from the blue room on the first floor. But the museum's motion detectors didn't detect any motion in the blue room the entire time that the thieves were in the building. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the only footsteps that were detected in that room at all that night were during the patrol before the robberies happened. Which again, how did they steal that painting without tripping the motion sensor? Yeah. It's kind of wild. Um, before they left, the thieves checked in on the guards one last time and like asked if they were comfortable. Which I think is really considerate for art thieves, like, low-key. But then they moved to the security director's office, and they took the video cassettes that recorded the entrance of the CCTV and the data printouts from the motion-detecting equipment. So they were trying to cover their tracks, I think. Mm. But they forgot about the hard drive. So I think that's how we know about, like, what happened, is because it was all on the hard drive. Um... And then they, the frame for one of the paintings that they stole was left at the security de- director's desk, which feels like such a call-out. <laughs> like, that's a little bit aggressive. Yeah. I don't know. Um, the thieves moved to take the artwork out, of the artwork out of the museum at that point, so they opened the side entrance doors at 2.40, and then again for the last time at 2.45. So, in total... The robbery was about 81 minutes, which I feel like is quite long. Yeah, especially for them, like, tearing or, like, cutting out the yeah. paintings. Not You'd like, think if they yeah. had all that time, they would not do that. Yeah. Weird. I think um, also in the... I don't remember the documentary very well because I watched it a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But I think they said it was like a weird collection. So it either yeah. came to them just like taking random things or like them being commissioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like a big thing because no one knows the motive for mm-hmm. the robbery. It's like a really random assortment of items. Yeah. Like there's no connection between any of them. And I think so I was reading this book called Portrait of a Thief. And it's about like art heists, but it's like commissioned by this company in China to like steal back Chinese artwork mm-hmm. and their whole thing was that like they have to steal these bronze zodiac heads but then to throw people off the scent they like took the zodiac heads and then also took a bunch of other things ah. so that it wasn't like oh my god every museum with a zodiac head needs to like lock its doors mm-hmm. it was like oh my god a robbery that's so weird mm-hmm. so maybe it was something like that maybe it's like they wanted to steal one thing but then didn't yeah. want to, like, tell people what they were stealing. Yeah, true, true. Didn't want to show their hand. Could be anything. It really could be. So wild. <laughs> like, no motive. What was happening? Yeah. Um, but anyway, the next shift of guards arrived later in the morning the next day. And they realized that something was wrong when they couldn't, like, contact anyone inside to be let in. Which was, like, really unusual. Mm-hmm. So they called the security director, and the security director had keys, walked in and found nobody at the watch desk, and then called the police. Um, and the police searched the building and found the guards still tied up in the basement. In total, they stole 13 works of art. Um, in 1990, the FBI valued it at around $200 million. But then, 10 years later, they raised the estimate to $500 million. Wow. And then in the late 2000s, some art dealers suggested that it could actually be worth $600 million. Wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah. (laughs) That is a lot of money. Yeah. And I think it's actually considered to be the highest value museum robbery. Uh Which is crazy, because it was 13 Uh works of art. Yeah. Like, could you imagine? Isabella Stewart Gardner was loaded. <laughs> she was rich. Yeah. Goodness. Good for her. <laughs> yeah, truly. Truly. Um, 
But the sad part was that, like, her will said that nothing in her collection should be moved. Mm-hmm. So that's why they left these empty frames for the stolen paintings in wherever, like, she put them. Mm. Um, which I think is so sad. Yeah. It's like, like, they're just, like, hoping that one day their paintings will be returned to them. Yeah. And I think that's like, really adorable, but also really sad at the same time. I mean, yeah, but, like... When you think about it, at some point, I feel like they've got a surface, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, they can't just be gone forever. I mean, unless they're, like, destroyed. But I think that'd yeah, be even sadder. Be really sad, yeah. Like, that's 13 works of art. Like, I yeah. hope they're not destroyed. I hope they're just, like, in the basement of some rich guy's mansion. Yeah, probably, honestly. <laughs> I truly hope so at this point. Like, I'd rather that than them being destroyed. Yeah. Do you know if, like, the... um like the pieces of canvas that were left from like them being cut out if those are still in the frames i don't know i think i'm sure they must have them Mm. but i think the frames are just empty Mm. for aesthetic reasons because it would kind of look bad yeah that's true (laughs) just like yeah the remainder of the stretched out (laughs) canvas yeah but i'm sure that they have them i feel like that's like definitely evidence yeah i would think so yeah I would think that they probably collected it for evidence and then either mm. returned it or kept it or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the museum didn't have the best funding. And again, they had no insurance policy. Um, so the director got help from Sotheby's and Christie's auction houses to post a reward of $1 million for the paintings um, around three days after um, the robbery. And that was increased to $5 million in 1997. And then in 2017, it was doubled to $10 million with an expiration date set for the end of the year. Mm. Um, But they extended it because there was like an outpouring of tips from the public, which, you know what, to be fair, like $10 million... That'll get you a few tips. Yeah. Um, But I think in addition to this being, like, the most expensive robbery, this is also the largest bounty ever offered by a private institution. Mm. (laughs) They're breaking a lot of records, but I don't think it's the records that they want to break. Yeah, definitely not. Um, But the reward is for, quote-unquote, information that leads directly to the recovery of all of their items in good condition. I like how they had to specify good condition. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But um, federal prosecutors have also stated that anyone who willingly returns the items will not be prosecuted. And the statute of limitations expired in 1995. So, like, the thieves or anyone who participated in the crime can't be prosecuted. Mm. And you'd think that would be a good enough excuse to, like, bring the art back. But no. I mean, maybe if they're still... Oh, well, I guess it happened a whole while ago, but if they're still, like, involved, you know? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Sometimes I forget that people could still be criminals. (laughs) And that's not a one and done, you know? Yeah. You could, like, implicate them further. Yeah. That's fair. Um... I think, so the FBI immediately took control of the case. Like, as soon as it happened, the FBI were called, and I think it was because the artwork likely crossed state lines, Mm -hmm. which is also fair. You're not going to keep stolen artwork in state. That'd be really risky. (laughs) I actually think that that would be the best place to hide something. Because, like, yeah, it would be searched, but then, like, who's going to believe that, like, you live right next door to the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum (laughs) and you have all 13 paintings, like, right there. I guess. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Either could work. It could mm-hmm. go either way. Um, but the case is very unique because of the actual lack of physical evidence. The mm-hmm. thieves had no footprints. They had no hair. And the fingerprints that were there could have been, like, thieves or museum mm-hmm. employees. Like, no one could tell. Yeah. Um. And then I think the DNA analysis that they did in the years following when, like, you know, the advancements in technology were made um, were lost. Like, some of the evidence was just, like, lost in the files. I think there was just so much. Um, 
But the guards and the witnesses in the street said that one of the thieves was five foot nine to five foot ten in his late thirties, medium build, and the other was six foot or like six one, early thirties, heavier build. Um, in terms of initial suspects, I think Rickabath was initially investigated because of his actually really suspicious behavior on the night of the theft, which, like, I get. He was being a little bit sus. Um, I think the big thing is that he opened the the side door to the museum, Mm -hmm. which is, like, where the car was parked. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people believe that it could be, like, a signal or something to the thieves outside. But he was like, guys, I do this all the time. I need to ensure the door is locked. Which is sketchy in and of itself, because it's not protocol to do that. And then, yeah. (laughs) But I guess there's some things that you do in your job that, like, aren't protocol, you know? That's true. But one of his colleagues told journalists that, like, if he was opening the door every night, like, routinely, like he says, the supervisors would have seen it on the computer printouts and been like, hey, Mm. that's not protocol. You need to not do that. That's true. So he, that must mean, like, he wasn't doing it Mm -hmm. all that often. And then again, there was suspicion about the motion detectors because, like, there was movement in the blue room during the patrolling time, but not during the 81 minutes that the thieves were in the museum. So, how did they steal the painting mm-hmm. without the motion detectors? Um, and they even, like, the security consultant reviewed the motion detectors weeks after the theft and said that they were operating correctly. Mm. And then, even with all of that, they were like, something suspicious is going on here. The FBI agent who was overseeing the case in the early years basically said that the guards were too incompetent and too foolish to have pulled off the crime. Which... Dang. Was such a burn. Yeah. Like, I would rather be accused of art theft than being called incompetent and foolish. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. (laughs) Um... In 2015, the FBI released a security video from the museum on the night before the theft, which shows a bath buzzing in an unidentified man into the museum and talking to him at the security desk. But he said that he didn't recall the incident, didn't recognize the man, and didn't know what was happening. (laughs) Honestly, me too. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Okay, okay. So the FBI requested the public's assistance and several former museum guards came forward and says that said that the stranger was his boss, the museum deputy security chief. And I just think it's so funny that he was like, I don't remember this happening. <laughs> I didn't do that. I don't know who that man is. <laughs> I've never I seen that man this. before. It was actually your uh, boss. Yeah, that's actually my boss. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that's really funny. <laughs> Um, but anyway, he was, I don't think he's the suspect anymore because he's too incompetent and foolish to commit the crime. Um, you know, good for him. Um, in addition, literally, (laughs) sorry, I just realized. He's a man. What do you expect? (laughs) Um, right. In addition to him, um, Whitey, I think, Witty? Witty Bulger was oh, one of the Bulger. yeah him thank you mm-hmm. thank you for knowing who I'm talking <laughs> got about you, got you. <laughs> I actually don't know how to say names I'm not gonna lie this is horrible <laughs> no totally fair he was one of the most powerful crime bosses in Boston at the time the head to the Winter Hill Gang which I constantly forget that there's like a mafia in Boston yeah same honestly like I'm like oh Boston's just like a fun little city yeah, Boston like, Street chilling. No crime. And then you read this story and you're like, oh, yes, the mafia. The oh, multiple yeah. mafia gangs. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> anyway, we love Boston. <laughs> he basically claimed that he didn't organize the heist. And he actually sent his agents out in an attempt to determine who did because the robbery <laughs> was committed on his turf and he wanted to be paid tribute for it. <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> 
<laughs> he really said no robbing places on my turf unless it's me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he also had strong ties to the Boston police, which could explain, like, if the thieves worked for him, how they got, like, police uniforms, or maybe mm. if it was just, like, actual police officers who pulled the heist off. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, and one of the FBI agents on the case said that the fact that the fire alarm was stripped ahead of time, it was, like, the calling card of the Irish Republican Army, which, again, mm. he has ties with, and also the Ulster Volunteer Force, which were both active in Boston and had also, like, pulled off heists in the past. Um, which I find very interesting because I really didn't think that there were that many art heists in Boston. (laughs) Yeah, I guess you don't really hear about them as often. Yeah, that's so true. Um, but anyway, I don't think, I don't know, I don't think he did it. I feel like if he did, he'd take credit for it, you know? Yeah, or like say something sly, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of, instead of being like, guys, that was on my property, like, (laughs) you can't steal on my property. (laughs) Um, anyway, in 1994, the museum director, Anne Hawley, received an anonymous letter from someone who was claiming to, like, negotiate the return of the artwork. Um, and this anonymous writer explained that they were a third-party negotiator. They didn't know the identity of the thieves, but the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence. But Mm -hmm. now I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. Um, I'm guessing it was like paying someone off, you know, oh, or like yeah. selling it to pay someone off or something. Okay. Um, but that opportunity had now passed, so there was no longer a motive to keep the artwork, and the thieves wanted to negotiate a return. Um, which if this happened, like, what? Yeah. That's so you couldn't think of a better way to get money. <laughs> Unless it was like, oh, I need these specific 13 pieces of artwork from the Isabella Stewart Gardening Museum. Which, again, seems unlikely. Yeah. Like, who's going to pay off a judge or a guard or someone for that? Anyway. Also, how would they have done it if the person was in prison, right? Literally. Interesting. Well, I think maybe it's like the person's friends, family, accomplices who wanted to get them out of prison. Yeah, I guess that's a long. But that's like, exactly. But that's like very like you have to know someone really well to commit that big of an art crime. Yeah, and then if you do get them off, but you get caught, like exactly, you're in the opposite position. You know, like no, you're stuck in jail. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you have to be really sure that you're just not going to get caught. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, this writer was like, um. The artwork is being held in a non-common law country under climate-controlled conditions, well, which, you know, fair enough, like, yeah. at least it's climate-controlled. Yeah. Um, they wanted immunity from themselves, all others involved, and also $2.6 million for the return of the artwork. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> like, what a Coffee. number as well. Like, what? the reward for this was like $5 million, maybe. Or no, it was less than that. It was less than that at the time. But, like, 2.6? Like, that's such a specific number. Yeah, that is Why not round to, like, three? (laughs) And also, if the artwork was worth, like, 500 million, like, you could ask for a little bit more. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) they asked for $2.6 million to be sent to an offshore bank account at the same time the art was handed over. And was like, hey, if you guys are interested print a coded message in the Boston Globe Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think the writer talked about some stuff that was like only known by the museum and the FBI at the time you know to be like Mm. guys I've got cred in this like I know what's Mm -hmm. happening I'm actually in contact with the thieves Um, anyway they told the FBI about this and the Globe printed said coded message on May 1st 1994 um and Anne Holly received a second letter a few days later in which the writer acknowledged that the museum was interested in negotiating, but they were like, listen, I think that the FBI and the state authorities are, like, coming in. We're going to have to call this whole thing off. Wow. Um, the writer needed time to evaluate their options, but they never heard from them again. Mm. So, I don't know, maybe they got spooked or something. Um, 
In March of 2013, the FBI announced that they had made significant progress in the investigation and that they reported with a quote-unquote high degree of confidence that they identified the thieves, who they believed were members of a criminal organization based in the Mid-Atlantic and New England. I don't know who they are, but apparently they were identified. Um, They also felt, with the quote-unquote same confidence, that the artwork was transported to Connecticut and Philadelphia in the years following the heist, and there was an attempted sale in Philadelphia in 2002. Hmm. But, in 2015, the FBI stated that both thieves were dead. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. They didn't identify anyone. But I think the sources say that they were associated with a different gang, the Merlino gang, that was loyal to the Boston Mafia boss, Frank Salemi. And they knew about the museum's weaknesses after a different gangster cased it in 1981. Okay. And then in 1982, there were undercover FBI agents investigating this this gang and the associates for an unrelated art theft. And that's when they learned of the interest in robbing the museum. And that's when they warned the museum that someone was planning on robbing them. And that's when the museum like put together all of these safety protocols. Mm-hmm. All connected. Yeah. Damn. Um, so I think the person who they were investigating was in prison at the time of the robbery. But like, you never know, maybe he shared his plan with someone else. Yeah, true. I think the biggest suspects were these two associates of the Merlino gang, um, Robert Guarante and Robert Gentile. Um, let's just take a moment to appreciate that both of their names were Robert and their last name started with a G. <laughs> Robert G. <laughs> Bobby G. Yeah, Bobby G's. Um, Guarante died in 2004, but his wife, Aline, told the FBI in 2010 that her husband did own some of the paintings. Oh. And he apparently gave them to Gentile for safekeeping when he got sick in the early 2000s. Um, Gentile, like, denied everything. But he oh, was... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you're just gonna admit it. Come on. Ah, um, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> ah, shit. Foiled again. Swiping, no swiping. <laughs> um... But he was arrested on drug charges in 2012 and then was given a polygraph at that point, which indicated that he was lying when he denied knowing the artwork existed. But um, he was like, hey, guys, I'm telling the truth. I don't know anything about the art. Please give me a retest. Um, And during the retest, he said that Aline had once shown him the missing Rembrandt self-portrait. And then the polygraph said that, yeah, that was the truth. Hmm. Um. So that's the wife of the one that's dead? Yes. Okay. I think they both have passed away, but Gentile was more recent. I think Okay. the late 2010s. Um, a few days later, the FBI stormed his house. They had a warrant, and they stormed his house. And they found this secret ditch under a false floor in the backyard. Oh. Um, and his son explained that the ditch flooded a few years prior, and his father was really upset about whatever was stored there. Oh. I'm hoping it wasn't the artwork and it was just, like, something else. Yeah, that would suck. That would be really, really bad. Yeah. Um, but they did find a copy of the Boston Herald from March 1990 reporting the theft, along with a piece of paper that indicated what each piece might sell for in the black market. That was a little sus. Yeah. It's not great. No. But there was no other, like, conclusive evidence. Like, maybe he was just, like... You yeah, know, conspiracy theorists yeah, in the basement the with their, like, red threads and a whiteboard. Maybe he was just doing that. Yeah. And then he was just really upset because all of his hard work at trying to find the thief was gone. Yeah. And it wasn't millions and millions of dollars of stolen paintings. Yeah. Because I would be really sad if it was. Yeah, that would be really, yeah, not great. <laughs> no, no, it would not be. Um, 
There is another associate of the Merlino gang, David Turner, who was investigated in 1992 when a source told the police that he had access to the paintings. Um, Merlino was arrested the same year for cocaine trafficking and told the authorities that he could return the paintings for a reduced prison sentence. And he asked Turner to track down the paintings, but Turner failed to do so, but said that he heard that they were in a church in South Boston. Um, Another associate was arrested in the drug sting, told authorities about Turner's involvement in several break-ins, but never specifically mentioned the heist. Um, And then based on conversations with Merlino after his release from prison in the mid-1990s, the authorities basically said that, like, he never had direct access to the paintings, but possibly could broker for their return. Um, the evidence indicates that he went to Florida to pick up a cocaine order, which I thought was a funny way to phrase that, because, like, it sounds like he's just ordering, like, Panera or something. <laughs> like, oh, I'm just coming down to Florida to pick up my cocaine order. <laughs> casual. Um, just casual. Um... And that happened a few days before the heist, and then his credit card record suggests that he, like, was in Florida throughout the robbery. But Mm. some investigators believe that it might have been his attempt at creating an alibi, Mm. which is fair. Like, if you want an alibi, you just give your friend your credit card, and you're like, hey, spend a couple hundred. That's true. Yeah. Um, The other thief could have been his friend and associate, George Reisfelder. Um, who died in July of 1991. Um, there were no clues in Turner's apartment, but his siblings recall a painting similar to one of the ones that were stolen in his bedroom, which is kind of a power move. Yeah. To hang it up in your room. Just right there. Like, like don't sell it or anything on the black market, just like, hang it up yeah like that's kind of wild very (laughs) you know what good for them um in 1999 the fbi arrested turner merlino and rossetti along with a couple others in the sting operation because they had heard that they were planning to rob this loomis fargo vault um when the FBI brought Turner in for questioning, they told him that they had information that he participated in the robbery and that if he returned the paintings, they would let him go. But he said that he didn't know who stole the paintings, didn't know where they could be hidden, didn't know what was going on. Um, and then he was on trial in 2001 when he claimed entrapment that the FBI let the Loomis Fargo plot proceed so that they could pressure him for information about the Gardner paintings. Hmm. The jury found him guilty, and he was sent to prison. So there is a lesson in that. <laughs> Don't steal things. <laughs> um, but Turner basically knew Gentile through Garante, and in 2010 wrote a letter to Gentile asking if he could um, get his former girlfriend to assist in recovering the Gardner paintings. Which... I don't know what was happening there or what their relationship is, but, like, they must have still been friends to be like, hey, my ex can help recover the paintings. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (sighs) You know, I don't know how the mafia works, but apparently it works like that. (laughs) Um, but in cooperation with the FBI, Gentile spoke with Turner's girlfriend, and she told him that Turner wanted to speak with two of his ex-convict friends in Boston, So the FBI was like, you know what, Gentile, you meet them, send an FBI undercover agent with him, but Gentile didn't want to cooperate, Mm -hmm. which is fair. Yeah. It's a bit sketchy. Um, Turner was freed from prison in November of 2019, which was about one month after Rossetti, and unfortunately, Merlino died in prison in 2005. Mm -hmm. Um... Then it gets more complicated. (laughs) There are so many players involved in this heist. Yeah. (laughs) So many characters. Um, But they ended up investigating the murder of Jimmy Marks in 1991, which was about 11 months after the heist, and Marks was killed while unlocking his front door in Lynn. And the killer had basically unscrewed the light bulb over the door 
to make sure that he wouldn't see what was coming. And I think that the police were like, listen, this was definitely a classic mob style hit. Like he must have had something to do with what was going on. Mm. And apparently he was heard bragging about having two of the stolen paintings Mm. and that he had hidden some of the stolen artwork. So that is sketchy. Yeah. Um, and he had connections with other people who were said to be involved. Like, he was friends with Garante. Um, his niece, Darlene Finnegan, who was 26 at the time of the murder, said that Marx had told her that he had something big coming up and wasn't sure if he was going to do it. But I think at the time she assumed that he was just referring to cocaine. Mm. <laughs> Which, honestly, it's a fair assumption. Like, there was a lot of coke going around in the 1990s. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then on top of that, Aline Garante pointed to a picture of Marx during an interview and said that her husband had killed him. So they were like, maybe he was actually telling the truth about having two of the paintings, about hiding some of the paintings, and that's why the mob killed him. Mm-hmm. And lastly, we have made it to the final player that I'm going to talk about today. <laughs> Um, Bobby Donati, who was also murdered in 1991 in a gang war, but they suspected that he was involved in the heist after this other art thief, Miles J. Connor Jr., spoke to the authorities. And Connor was in jail at the time, but he said that he believed Donati and his friend David Houghton were part of it because he had worked with Donati in past heists. All of this is making me realize just how entangled the mafia is with art heists. <laughs> Like, you'd really think it would be bank robberies or something, but really, these they're out there stealing artwork. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Um, anyway, he claimed that they had cased the museum together, but Donati took, like, a special interest in it. And he also claimed that Houghton had visited him in jail after the heist. He said that he and Donati organized it and were going to use the paintings to get Connor out of jail. So maybe that was what the um, writer was talking about. Mm. being like, hey, we use these paintings to get someone out of prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, just the fact that, like, both of the stories kind of, like, corroborate each other. Yeah. Makes me feel like maybe that had something to do with it. Yeah. But even though Donati's and Houghton's appearances didn't really fit the witness descriptions, Connor basically was like, well, maybe they hired someone, like, lower level people because like why would you want to do that yourself if you don't have to yeah true um connor basically told the investigators that he could assist in returning the gardener works in exchange for the museum's reward and also his freedom but the investigators didn't give in to his demands because there was a lack of evidence Mm. which is fair (laughs) so he suggested that they speak to a criminal and also an antiques dealer William P. Youngworth. So the FBI took that lead and opened a case on Youngworth and conducted raids on his home and the antique store properties in the 1990s. Um, And the raids caught the attention of this journalist called Tom Mashberg, who had been talking with Youngworth in 1997 about the theft. And one night in August of 1997, Youngworth called Mashberg and said that he had proof that he could return the gardener paintings under the right conditions. And that night, Youngworth picked up Mashberg from Boston, like the Boston Herald offices, and drove him to this warehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Led him into this like storage unit that had a lot of like large cylinder tubes. And he basically took a painting out of the tube and unfurled it and showed it to Mashberg under a flashlight. And to Mashberg, he said that it was one of the stolen paintings. It was the storm on the Sea of Gailey. And he noted cracking along the canvas and reported that the edges were, like, cut in a manner that he thought was consistent with the museum's reports. Mm -hmm. And he saw Rembrandt's signature on the painting. And he basically wrote about this experience in the Boston Herald. He left out a bunch of details to hide Youngworth's identity in the location, but he reported that his quote-unquote informant told him that the robbery was pulled off by five men and identified Donati as one of the robbers and Houghton as someone who was responsible with moving the art to a safe house. Hmm. 
The FBI discovered the location of the warehouse several months later, and they raided it. They found nothing because, like, obviously who's going to keep your art in this warehouse after the cover's been blown? Yeah. Um, but the thing that was disputed was how true it was that this was the artwork. Um, Youngworth gave paint chips to Mashburg, and the federal authorities reported that they were from Rembrandt's era, but they didn't match the oils used for the storm on the Sea of Gailey. Mm-hmm. And also the way that Mashburg has described the painting being, like, unfurled was, like, I want to say scrutinized, but, like, basically scrutinized. Mm-hmm. Um, because they said that the stolen painting would be covered with a heavy varnish that would not roll out easily. So the federal authorities in the museum worked with the Youngworth after the story was published, but Youngworth, like, wasn't really making negotiations easy. Um, he didn't work with authorities unless his demands could be met, and that those demands included full immunity and releasing Connor from jail. Um, so the authorities, rightfully so, were skeptical of how true these and valid these claims were and offered only partial immunity. Um, the U.S. attorney overseeing the case eventually stopped talking to Youngworth um, unless he could provide more reliable evidence that he had access to the to the paintings. Um, and he, again, provided a vial of paint chips from the Storm of the Sea of Gailey and 25 color photographs of the painting and of the painting A Lady and Gentleman in Black. Um... There was a joint statement that the museum and the federal investigators put out that said that the chips were not from the stolen Rembrandts, though they did test as from being 17th century paintings. Um, And they could potentially have been from the concert, but they were not from the painting that they said it was from. Okay. Um, In 2014... Another investigative reporter wrote to Vincent Ferrara, who was Donati's superior during the gang war, and asked if he had any information about the Gardner theft, which honestly, like, could you imagine being that bold? Like, hello, I am a reporter. Can you please give me information on this art theft? Yeah. I think that's wild. <laughs> um, but he basically said that he received a call back from an associate of Ferrara who explained that the FBI was wrong in suspecting Merlino's gang in being involved and um, claimed that Donati organized a robbery. Um, he, the caller explained that Donati visited Ferrara in jail about three months before the theft and that Ferrara was in jail for murder. Um, but Donati was like, hey, I'm going to do something to get you out of jail. Three months later, Ferrara heard news of the Gardner theft. Donati visited him again, confirmed to Ferrara that he was involved in the robbery, claimed to have buried the artwork, and said that he would start a negotiation for the release once the investigation cooled down, which again could be the anonymous note that they received. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Um, the negotiations never occurred because Donati was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, the reporter believed that Donati was motivated to free Ferrara from prison because Ferrara could protect him in the gang war, but obviously, like, that didn't happen. Also, I think it's wild that we had gang wars in Boston, <laughs> like, basically 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, you really think you know this city? <laughs> um, anyway, a friend of Garante also corroborated that Donati organized the whole robbery. Donati gave the paintings to Garante when he became concerned for his own safety and that they were both close friends they were apparently seen at a social club in revere before the robbery with a bag of police uniforms (laughs) which again i think that's so funny like could you imagine just being seen in public with a bag of police uniforms (laughs) what yeah like what is going on there (laughs) halloween early i don't know in march or something yeah um Anyway, the museum, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney's Office are still all seeking any viable leads that could result in the safe return of the art. So, if you have any information, please contact the Gardner Museum directly. They say that confidentiality is assured. 
Um, but yeah, it hasn't been solved yet. It's been many, many years. But I think the case is actually technically still open. And they are still looking at leads. Um, but yeah, I hate leaving you on that note because there was no <laughs> resolution at all. But that is the case that I have for you today. Well, I hope you enjoyed this little break from murder. I did. I'm not going to lie. I'm actually really enjoying art crimes. <laughs> um, maybe maybe there'll be some more of these in our future. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you sound unconvinced, but no, it'll, happen. it'll happen. It'll <laughs> happen. You know, I just figured we could use like a chill day instead of me being like, and then seven people were murdered. <laughs> I feel like there's such a difference between that and like, Oh, they stole 13 paintings valued at $600 million. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I know that was quite a long one, actually. <laughs> we haven't done this long of a podcast episode in a hot minute. Yeah. Um, I hope you enjoyed. I did. Thank you. But you are legally obligated to say that, just <laughs> as a reminder. You yeah, can't support, tell me that you didn't enjoy the story. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. This is actually really fun. I enjoyed it. I'm glad. Um, Do you have any questions, comments, or concerns about that case? I do not. Nice. I feel like I covered it. (laughs) Yeah. That makes me feel better about myself. (laughs) I just remember going as a little kid. I, like, don't remember much of it, but I think Mm -hmm. I remember going and, like, seeing the empty frames. I was like, why why are they like that? (laughs) Hello, empty yeah, frames. Like, what is so embarrassing? We like, don't have enough paintings. <laughs> oh my god! Could you, little seven-year-old me, roasting them? Absolutely, <laughs> hear you say that. Like that's so embarrassing for them. <laughs> I think that's yeah. so funny. Um, yeah, but yeah. Hopefully, one day they will find their missing paintings. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Um, on that happy note, <laughs> would you like to change the subject for us? Um, let me see. I don't feel like I got much going on. That's so valid. Um, I might have my last horse show of my college career this weekend. Oh my god, that's so sad. What? It's crazy to think, to be quite honest. Wait, is that really (laughs) it? There aren't any more in the next few months? No, because it's kind of like IEA, where it's like most of the show season is like early winter-ish and then spring is like regional zones nationals are you going to regional zones nationals it'll depend on if i get a second place or not i believe in you you got this you're gonna get first i got sick at the last one so first (laughs) we'll see we'll see i believe in you yeah well i'll I'll keep you updated we'll (laughs) see we'll see but potentially the last one so that's oh my crazy. god no it's not gonna be you're gonna go to regionals and zones <laughs> see what if i do go to regionals that's another like day i have to wake up at like 5 a.m so. oh so true bestie you know <laughs> i forgot about that like, a huge track <laughs> don't you can we'll still nice, ride for fun yeah exactly and there's an alumni class for ihsa which oh. is intriguing but i probably will not do but it's yeah, not fair that's so <laughs> valid i want to show again <laughs> fair enough <laughs> but yeah that is it for me do you have any life updates a solid update um they brought back i don't know if you remember this from when you were here but the sainsbury's meal deal has innocent smoothies oh and they have this thing going on where they knitted these little hats for the innocent smoothies so you can buy a smoothie in the meal deal or just alone and it'll come with a a hat like like a tiny hat um and so i now have a tiny hat and i've never been happier (laughs) i don't think i remember that what are what are they the smoothies it's just like a brand innocent smoothies Hmm. and they just sell them like usually at the grocery store in the meal deal um because they're like not like a small size i think they're a good size but mm-hmm. like it's like for like a lunch yeah you know yeah i think i was but, more of a tesco girl so yeah that's fair yeah <laughs> that's really fair. see honestly i was a tesco girl until they increased the price of the meal deal to 340 yeah. and sainsbury's is 350 and oh, yeah. honestly the sainsbury's is better because you get yeah. more stuff so i've become a sainsbury's girl and i'm okay oh, with that fair. yeah 
As well as um, like a little girl too. <laughs> <laughs> Which love I did not little. know they had in the US. Neither. I was in Maryland over the summer and I would drive past a little sometimes. Yeah. And I'd be like, whoa. Maybe what it's is this? I, don't know. I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. But, but I mean I'm not mad about it. Yeah. I do love little. Yeah, that was a good time. <laughs> um, my friend sent me a picture of her innocent smoothies that she bought and she has one that has a strawberry hat Oh, and I didn't see that in the store and I think I have to go back I think you do I really do I think I have to go back and get the strawberry you have no option it's really cute that sounds really cute um but yeah that's that's honestly it like that's the only joy that's happened in my life this recent week <laughs> it's my little hat fair enough yeah. fair enough <laughs> it'd be like that, that sometimes joyful. it is it is wonderful um, well, I'm happy for you. Thank you. But yeah, that's all that I have for you. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I do not. Alrighty, do you want to spiel us out? Yeah. Um, so you can find us on Instagram at Grim Podcast. You can follow us, like our photos, DM us, and from our profile, there's a button to email us. You can email us at thegrimpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us thoughts on stories we have covered, stories you want us to cover, or life updates of your own. We also have a Twitter, which is Grim Podcast. No, Podcast Grim, and a Facebook, which is Grim Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and other than that, just leave us a good review and tell your friends and family about us. Yeah. And until then, stay safe out there, you guys. And if you live in mm-hmm. Boston, remember, we have a mafia. <laughs> just keep that in the back of your mind. Keep that in the back of your mind. <laughs> um, but that is, that's all for this week. And we'll see you guys next week for yeah. some paranormal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. Bye.